Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Strap in. Today's show travels far. Author Misha Marin takes us from the hills of West Virginia to the Texas-Mexico border region, the land of the luchador. El Vengador rolled out and reversed into an arm bar, but Diablo escaped and hooked El Vengador's elbow and pinned it against his back. We'll also hear what West Virginians are doing to help Ukrainian refugees from the war with Russia. You know, we just thought we could just bring people here. And we'll speak with Eastern Tennessee singer-songwriter Amethyst Kia about her approach to mountain music. You know, I always want to make sure that I keep it, keep it melodic, keep it melancholic, and keep it weird. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Russia invaded Ukraine back in mid-February. It feels like a long time ago, and yet this war continues. Millions of Ukrainians have fled from the destruction and now are refugees. A West Virginia interfaith ministry is trying to help and bring some of those refugees into welcoming communities here. But it's a big undertaking with lots of red tape. Rabbi Victor Urecki is the ministry's director. West Virginia Public Broadcasting's Randy Yohi spoke with Urecki about the Refugee Assistance Project. First of all, tell us about the makeup and mission of your West Virginia Interfaith Refugee Ministry. WVRM, the West Virginia Interfaith Refugee Ministry, began in October of 2015. We came together when we saw what was going on in Syria, and it was a group of Jews, Muslims, Christians, people of all faiths, many faiths. And what began as a discussion eventually became an organization with the, the dedication and the, the mission of trying to bring refugees to our area. And I know you started to get your ducks in a row to try to respond to the Syrian refugee crisis. What happened that made that effort collapse? You know, we just thought we could just bring people here. But we found out we have to work uh, hand in glove with both the State Department as well as one of the non the nine non-governmental organizations that are in charge of resettling refugees. So after a year of paperwork, answering questions, uh, interviewing people around the community to make sure that we can do this, we finally got approved in 2016. What we found out is the administration, and every year in October, an administration determines how many refugees can come to the United States. We got approved when it was at 85,000. However, the Trump administration immediately, by executive order, dropped it down to 56,000. We got a call from the State Department that says because the numbers are so low, we were the newest city to come in, we would not be able to resettle anyone, and we've been struggling ever since. President Biden immediately raised that to 65,000, not as much as we would want, but certainly a significant bump up. He's also now in fiscal year 2022 raised that to 125,000. Well, now you're watching the war in Ukraine. That 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 crisis is just as heartbreaking, and the challenges are perhaps even more complicated. First off, those fleeing their homes in Ukraine are not refugees, but displaced persons. Explain the difference. Most people, when they leave, they're forced to flee out of fear for their lives in a situation like Ukraine are really displaced citizens. Their intention is not to become refugees. They want to go back home. At a certain point, as the war continues to drag on, as uh, cities become completely devastated and people can't return home, that's when a family has to make that painful decision, what do we do? 
and then they apply for refugee status, status, and then hope that they can be resettled in a different country. Talk about the numbers and the passions of West Virginians who want to help bring refugees here. When we could no longer bring refugees into our area, for the next few years, we just became an advocacy group. In 2021, when, as you mentioned, we saw what was happening in Afghanistan, we were starting to get calls from West Virginians saying, these are people that helped our soldiers. They saved the lives of U.S. soldiers that risked their lives. Can we do anything for them? And then, of course, when we saw what was happening in Ukraine, we got inundated with calls, people saying, can we settle them here? The same questions we were asking in 2015. And at that point, we realized we need to see if we can be become, again, more than just an advocacy group. Not a refugee resettlement state, but the refugee resettlement city of Charleston. Correct. Talk about that. In our case, we would be working with the NGO, the Episcopal Migration Ministry. We need to work within an, a radius of about 40 miles because what we do is recreate the infrastructure to have a successful integration of all refugees. We have found them an apartment, which is nearby grocery store, which is also nearby employment because they need to be employed within 90 to 120 days. We need to make sure their children are immunized, that there is um, English as a second language courses available for both the adults as well as children. And we educate our state officials to let them know that. Also the economic benefits of refugees and how they benefit long-term the viability and economic sustainability of any community that they become part of. And there is an economic benefit. What they have done to survive and to get to this country is nothing short of miraculous. They will work hard and their children will work hard. Since 1980, since the Refugee Resettlement Act, not a single terrorist act has ever been committed on U.S. soil by a person coming through this program. They take the jobs because they can pass background checks, they can pass also uh, drug tests. They will work hard. They will see that their children are educated. Suddenly, the next thing you know, their kids are going to colleges and universities, becoming doctors and integrating fully into American life. What are the salient points? You've talked about the red tape involved, but what are the salient points that must be established to bring refugees to Charleston, West Virginia? Is there affordable housing for the refugees? Are there, for the families, the ability for them to have a community? Um, one of the reasons why we, I think, were so successful is we have a very vibrant Muslim community here in Charleston. Will there be legislation that might hurt refugee resettlement status? Are there schools nearby for the children? You know, are there grocery stores? Do we have the transportation uh, necessary? Is there enough medical um, uh, uh, situation for them to be able to, again, both have their children vaccinated, et cetera? What are your aims and goals moving forward? So we want to build interest and capacity. I think long-term, again, is to save lives. And hopefully by 2023 sometime, we will be able to resettle refugees here in our area and show what refugees can, can do positively in our community. When I explain what refugees can do for our, our city and for our state, you seem to have that, you, you get from people this idea of, I want to help. And not only just because it's the right thing to do, but it's also the right thing for our state. That was Rabbi Victor Urecki, speaking with government reporter Randy Yohe. Urecki has been rabbi of Charleston's Benai Jacob Synagogue since 1986. For our next story, we're talking with the reporter Zach Harold. Hey, I got a, a little treat for you, man, um, but I, I think you're going to be jealous. Uh, do you know anything about the author Misha Marin? I've heard the name. Tell me more. Okay. Well, she made a splash with her debut novel, Sugar Run which is set in a fictionalized version of her hometown, Alderson, West Virginia. But she's got a new novel out called Perpetual West, and I, I think it's right up your alley. 
How so, Zach? Well, listen, it's got three main characters. The first is Alex. He's a Mexican-American graduate student who was adopted by white parents and raised in West Virginia. He goes down to Texas to reconnect with his roots, and he takes along the book's second main character, his wife Elena. Her life is in an uproar. Her mom is dead. She has a strained relationship with her dad. Her brother's a recovering addict. She's struggling with an eating disorder. But, but here's where Mason Adams comes in. Once they're at the border, Alex meets up with the third main character, Mateo. He's a professional wrestler in Mexico who goes by the name El Vingador del Norte, the Avenger of the North. Yes, pro wrestling. You nailed it. Thanks for letting me know about this, Zach. But I got to ask, though, I've watched a lot of mountain wrestling here. Tell me how Lucha Libre factors into it. Well, as you read the book, you see that there are a lot of similarities between American wrestling and pro wrestling in Mexico, uh, Lucha Libre. But the most telling juxtaposition here is the the similarities between Appalachia and rural Mexico. That's where it gets really interesting. This novel is a, a ripping story about identity and home. Uh, Misha was passing through West Virginia on her book tour, and I got a chance to interview her in front of a live audience at Taylor Books in downtown Charleston. Uh, so I started off asking her to read a short excerpt. Usually, a fight was one long moment of total focus. But now, suddenly, he was separated. He was, wa- he was Mateo watching El Vengador move this body. He tried to shake it off, but the bell had already rung, and immediately, Diablo had him down in a leg lock. El Vengador rolled out and reversed into an arm bar, but Diablo escaped and hooked El Vengador's elbow and pinned it against his back. This was what Diablo loved to do, keep the fight down on the mat as long as he could to prevent El Vengador from the high-flying acrobatics that the crowd so loved. They rolled together across the canvas until El Vengador slipped away and leapt up, taunting Diablo as he climbed to the third rope. Once up there, though, he froze. You couldn't stop in a moment like that or you'd lose all nerve, but there he was, stunned and swaying in the corner while Diablo grabbed at his legs. He leapt over Diablo's head and landed clumsily. By the third round, he managed a decent drop kick that sent Diablo over the ropes, but a moment later, Diablo came roaring back into the ring, holding a metal folding chair over his head. And as Mateo backed away, he realized this was the moment. This was what he had been waiting for all night. He focused on Diablo's red leather mask until it was blocked by the chair that rose and then crashed down onto El Vengador's legs. There was the smack of contact and then something burst and his left leg was all wet and a burning pain rose through him, blocking out the lights, the voices. He collapsed and he let go of everything, finally fully in the moment now under the wall of pain. So interesting, the the melding of Appalachia and Mexico and academia and wrestling. Like, it's so interesting, su- such an interesting stew that you've made here. Where did, where did all of these elements start coming together for you? I think they all, they all came together through me, through myself, actually. So the funny thing is that I think when I um, tell people, like, a brief description of my two novels— Sugar Run and Perpetual West, people usually think that it would be Sugar Run that would be more autobiographical in a certain way because most of it's set in West Virginia and um, it is set in a fictional version of Alderson. And, um, but in, in not so straightforward ways, Perpetual West is, I think, actually a lot more autobiographical in terms of 
some of the events and the ways that things came about. So when I was just after my 21st birthday, um, I was I had left West Virginia, was living in Asheville, North Carolina, um, and I took a Greyhound bus to El Paso. Um, and at that point, I was moving out there. I thought I was just moving out there for a little while because I wanted to be close to a woman that I'd fallen in love with who was doing a study abroad program um, in Ciudad Juarez. And she was already out there. She'd already started her classes, and I would tied up loose ends in Asheville, took a bus out there. Um, and when I arrived out there, she really wanted to introduce me to this new friend that she had made. And she was really excited. And it was this young punk activist guy who was also had started training to become a professional wrestler. And long story short, she left me for him. Um, which was a tale as old as time. She's yes. gonna leave you for the pro wrestler. <laughs> exactly. Which we've all been there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> And I actually tried to write about it in the kind of a non-fictional way, like from my own perspective, this, you know, whatever, for years. And it, I don't know why, it just didn't work out. It didn't come out right. It didn't sound the way that I wanted it to, and I couldn't make it work. Um, and so I put it aside and I worked on Sugar Run. And um, some of the themes, some of the ideas, some of, some of the aspects of like living there on the border or the professional wrestling, just stayed with me and I kept wanting to write about them. So I was like, well, maybe I'll try this from a much more fictional angle. Instead of trying to write what happened to me, let's just take these different pieces and stir them up. There are some definite similarities between those two places. Yeah. I mean, pe people do not understand Mexico. People do not understand West Virginia. And it takes somebody who is from there to tell you about it. Did that enter into the thinking of, of using these two locations to set your novel in? Yeah, and I think particularly in that border region, there's so many similarities that come down to West Virginia and uh, the, the border region there are definitely considered places where, yeah, if you're smart, if you're um, talented, you know, fill in the blank there, then you get the hell away from there. Um, and that's the narrative. And I started to realize that that was so true about both places. And the inverse of that, of course, is that those of us who do love places that are hard to love, we love them really, really, really fiercely. <laughs> and there was also a line about Elena. Um, somebody brought up like, oh, you're just an Anglo writing about Anglos writing about Mexicans. Yes. There was an awareness to that in your book. And we see that so much in West Virginia. Yes. People coming and trying to tell stories that they can't fully grasp. Were you anxious at all about putting something, setting something in a place that, I mean, like you said, your first novel was, was a fictionalized version of your hometown. Yeah. Who better to write right. about it than you? Right. But this is breaking outside right. that. If I was going to do this, it was really going to be a novel, and I was really going to try to put it out into the world, then I was going to have to own the fact that I was writing about a place that I don't have ownership over. I'm not from... Yeah. Northern Mexico, I'm not from Texas, I'm not, you know, I mean, I, I lived there for a little while and I went back out and did a lot of research, but there's only so far that research can really get you. And so I realized that, that um, not only did I need to, to own that fact, but also that I was dealing with characters in the novel who could plausibly connect to those questions. And so I'd rather put it in there and, have my readers kind of chew it over and think about it than to try to hide from it. And, you know, there's there's conversation, like you were saying, about cultural appropriation and stuff like that. And you know, some 
viewpoints on that would say like, well, you just shouldn't tell this story. But then if you don't break outside the bounds of like, I don't want, I don't necessarily want nobody to ever, nobody that's from, not from West Virginia to never write about West Virginia. No, I just want them to do it well. Right. <laughs> right. Which is then I laugh because I'm like, how do we define that? Right. Like I could read a book by, you know, somebody from wherever written that, that I define myself as being well written about West Virginia. I could be happy with it, but you might read it and be like, no. Yeah. Right. Um, or it's I, a minefield. Yeah. <laughs> It's my, but but you're right. Like take the time to at least try to do it right, yes. which yeah. clearly you have done a lot of research and and put put in that effort. Yeah, I mean, I do think. I mean, that that's the most basic step is if you are going to write about a place that you did not grow up in, then you are then you have a big task in front of you. And uh, yeah, that was author Misha Marin speaking with Zach Harold about her latest book, Perpetual West. She's a professor at Duke University and a writing fellow at the federal prison camp in Alderson, West Virginia. The COVID-19 pandemic really brought public health to the forefront the last couple of years. That's amid a lot of other regional health challenges, an aging population, rural health care cutbacks, and the opioid crisis. A new book called Appalachian Health Takes Stock. Randy Wyckoff is one of the book's two editors. West Virginia Public Broadcasting's Eric Douglas recently spoke with Wyckoff about the connections between health and social, political, and economic factors. The word that used in your book is, is that it's not monolithic, but we still do think of, of Appalachia as a bit of an island uh, within the middle of the country. Let's talk about that just for a second. What, what, why, is, why is Appalachia this sub-region within the country that, that but spans 13 states and 400 counties, 400 over, counties, something. Yeah. I think the, the way I think about Appalachia is that many of the health challenges that face the country are simply more concentrated in Appalachia. Uh, poverty, lack of educational achievement, lack of access to health care, poor health behaviors, and there are reasons why that has happened, but I think for me, understanding Appalachia helps you understand the health challenges of Americans everywhere. It's not that our problems are unique. It's not that we're unique. We're not different necessarily, but we have this series of health challenges that are worse here. And if we understand and can deal with the health challenges of Appalachia, we can deal with them anywhere. At the beginning of the book, you there's a list of health outcomes that in the United States in, as a whole are lower than adverse birth outcomes, injuries and homicides, adolescent pregnancy, things that, that are within the United States are lower than the rest of the industrialized world. But then you say that in West or in not West Virginia, in Appalachia, they are even lower. Why do you think that is? Why is it a problem in Appalachia? Well, I think the way I think about it is that most of what we see in Appalachia is the result of multiple intergenerational cycles, right? So we know that if you're born poor, you're likely to stay poor. We know if your parents are less educated, you're likely to be less educated. We know if your parents are smokers or obese, you're more likely to be smokers or obese. And these cycles get worse and worse over time. And in fact, in our country overall, the gap between rich and poor has been widening for over 50 years. So 
part of what we're seeing in Appalachia is the outcome of these intergenerational cycles. And I think the reason the U.S. ranks worse than other countries is because we have so much diversity in our health outcomes within the country. Um, so we've compared central Appalachia to the other, the non-Appalachian counties in the same six states of central Appalachia, and they're less healthy. It's not a Southern phenomenon, it's an Appalachian phenomenon related to poverty and intergenerational cycles. So what do we do about it? Well, I think, I think the key is recognizing that there's no one solution, right? Oftentimes people say, well, if we've got a problem with health, we just need to get more providers into the community. And that's a real problem. As you know, a lot of Appalachian communities have no health care at all. We've seen rural hospitals closing. But the real secret to improving health long term is economic development, jobs, education, and changing behavior. That's not to say access to health care isn't important. It's really important. But we've got to recognize that those things are interrelated. Think about it this way. You know from talking to Every employer you talk to, they will tell you they need a healthy, educated, drug-free workforce. You want to bring a new job into a community, they're going to ask, do you have a healthy, educated, drug-free workforce? And those are so interrelated that what we've got to do really is get those folks that are working on the education side, those folks working on economic development, those folks working on behavior change, get them to work together. That's really the secret to improving health in Appalachia, in you know, the Southeast, in the U.S.-Mexico border region, everywhere in our country. If we can't do those things together, we're not going to change health outcomes. Okay, magic wand time. Well, you know, I, we, we do know the problems can be solved, right? Now, I'm, I'm trained as a pediatrician, so I tend to think of, of issues from the child's standpoint. But, I mean, to me, anything we're going to do in Appalachia or in tribal lands or the U.S.-Mexico border or rural America anywhere has got to have to start with early childhood interventions. Um, you know, you want every mom to get prenatal care. You want every baby born in a safe environment. You want mom to know that that baby should go to sleep on the back, that they should breastfeed for six months, that they should be in a car seat. Someone can be reading to that baby. It's not rocket science, but we've got to change it incrementally. You know, the analogy of turning a great freighter in the ocean is probably the one for us, right? It doesn't happen. You know, you're not going to turn on a dime, but if you start turning a little bit in time, we're going to see major changes. Why aren't we making these changes? Why? And, and I know there are efforts, I, but it seems like we've been making these efforts since uh, you, at the beginning of the book, you, you alluded to, to Lyndon Johnson and the war on poverty. Yeah. Uh, you know, that was 60 years ago or, or, or very close to it. So why, aren't, why haven't we made these changes? The, the, the gap between rich and poor in our country has been widening for 60 years. And if you believe, as I do, that poverty is one of the great predictors of poor health, you just see this gap widening and widening and widening. And you know that poor communities have less money to invest in their school systems, the way taxes are distributed. I mean, it, it's, it's multiple cycles that overlap each other. I, I think we're starting to see some important improvements. Um, but, you know, we, it's, it's going to take a while. Was there any big aha moments in this or, or were you, uh, as you were putting this book together, or was there anything that surprised you or 
pretty much reinforced what you already knew. Uh, I, I would say there wasn't an aha moment with the book, but there was an aha moment before the book. And that was this idea that economic development, behavior, and healthcare are all interrelated. You know, we can't deal with one without dealing with the others. And economic development is both jobs and education. I think we're growing to understand that. You know, social programs, local organizations, nonprofits always tend to align themselves in one area. You know, here's a federal program to grow jobs. Here's a, fe- you know, a local program. And what we've got to do is get past that. We've really got to work together to solve the problem. And if we can, and if we do, then as you say, I think we're going to develop a model that works around the country. That was Randy Wyckoff speaking with Eric Douglas. Wyckoff is a founding dean and professor at East Tennessee State University. He co-edited the book Appalachian Health, Culture, Challenges, and Capacity. Marijuana laws have been changing around America, including here in Appalachia. Medical cannabis is now available to more than 8,000 patients in West Virginia. But as June Leffler reports, doctors say there's a lot more potential in the cannabis plant. Bob Fisher says as a child of the 70s, he's no stranger to some recreational cannabis use. But having PTSD and back pain got him curious about the medicinal benefits of the plant. I have two herniated discs in my lower back, and sometimes it's not so bad, sometimes it's really horrible. <laughs> like right now, I'm going through a spell where, you know, I'm doing the quasi-moto, you know, coming out of the bell tower thing where I sort of drag one leg behind me. It was a long time coming, but dispensaries have finally opened in the Mountain State, and Fisher has access to the product. He says it provides mental and physical relief. I can read or watch TV or and be able to function without sitting and thinking about how miserable I am. The proposed benefits of medical cannabis are wide-ranging. That's because it taps into your endocannabinoid system. Much like your nervous system, it impacts every part of your body. I think within the next um, decade, we'll see a whole new host of uses for medical cannabis. That's Dr. Meredith Fisher-Korn. She created the curriculum every doctor in West Virginia must take before they begin recommending cannabis. She's an expert. Every day I read through the medical literature and I examine the medical cannabis studies. I do. She's watched the research grow in recent years. The findings point to a wider use for medical cannabis than what's approved by the Food and Drug Administration. The FDA has only approved the cannabis components THC and CBD for those with cancer, HIV, and a certain epilepsy. I asked Korn how patients and doctors could reconcile the conservative FDA recommendations with what newer research says is possible. And even the current research have not found that cannabinoid therapies are superior to the current first-line therapies for any condition. So in other words, cannabis should not be used before a patient tries their current first-line therapy for any condition. Like Bob Fisher from earlier, he takes a pain pill to ease his back. But because he uses cannabis, he doesn't have to take as many pills as before. Easing off pain pills is one reason patients inquire about cannabis at Dr. Hassan Joffrey's office. 
He's a psychiatrist in Beckley. So they said, we want something which is safe for us. They know that this is opioid. It doesn't matter what it helps you, but it's, it's not safe. Cannabis is in no way a panacea for opioid use disorder. Health agencies say you can even get addicted to cannabis. But Joffrey points out the big difference between opioids and cannabis. And uh, there's no study will ever show that it's ever killed anybody. Despite its safety relative to opioids, cannabis still hasn't shaken its associated stigma. That stigma is coded in federal laws, workplace policies, and in the culture. That's frustrating to Dr. Heather Skeens, who recommends cannabis at her practice in Charleston. Patients are really scared when they call. They feel like they're going to be judged. They ask a lot of questions like, is my doctor going to know Is this that, that I'm doing this? You know, is my employer going to know? And I'm, am I going to get in trouble? Skeens has studied medical cannabis in California, and she's qualified to recommend it in a few other states. She thinks West Virginia has some catching up to do. So of all those states I certify in, West Virginia has the most limited list of qualifying conditions of any of those states. State lawmakers decide which patients have access to medical cannabis. That includes folks with Parkinson's, cancer, or PTSD. But it doesn't include other mental health conditions, such as anxiety or even substance use disorder. Skeen says West Virginia just thinks about cannabis differently than other Western states. Whereas if I talk to my patients in Montana, these people over there, they're so accustomed to cannabis being a normal treatment on this side of the U.S., there's still a large stigma around it. Rules on medical cannabis haven't changed much since the law was passed in 2017. But doctors, including some West Virginia lawmakers, hope the practice and acceptance will keep growing. For Appalachia Health News, I'm June Leffler in Charleston. Appalachia Health News is a project of West Virginia Public Broadcasting with support from Charleston Area Medical Center and Marshall Health. After the break, we'll talk with East Tennessee singer-songwriter Amethyst Kia. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. We'll be right back. Late at night when I feel alone I cry in darkness, screaming to the unknown Cause she's never coming back Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia with career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. Amethyst Kia grew up in East Tennessee and self-released four albums before Rounder Records put out Wary and Strange in 2021. It's a personal, soulful record. Kia writes witty lines, wry observations, and occasionally, like on this song, Black Myself, these searing, anthemic lines about identity. I don't pass the test of the paper bag Cause I'm black myself I pick the banjo up and they stare at me Cause I'm black myself You better lock your doors when I walk by Cause I'm black myself You look me in my eyes But you don't see me Cause I'm black myself I recently spoke with Amethyst she told me that music has been a part of her life since she was a child. Music sort of like drawn me into this 
really magnificent space where I can kind of like disappear into another world. And when you come out of it, you come back to the immediate world and it gives a new perspective on the world, which is what art's supposed to do, you know. But to experience art in that way has always been really, really powerful to me. And it's been the backdrop throughout my entire journey of identity and self-discovery and all that kind of stuff. So, I love that description of music is taking you to another world because honestly, that's what it sounds like listening to your music. It goes a lot of places, (laughs) but it's all really personal, you know, and Wary and Strange in particular is such a a personal album. And with it coming out the way it did, I think most people are hearing it in their homes or in their headphones. I'm curious what it's been like as the world has opened back up and you've been going back to playing live again. Getting back into performing, I was at that point where I was like, man, I am really, really missing it, like, a lot. And then once I performed, it just really kind of hit home how much I really needed this, you know. I'm a pretty uh, introverted person. I think introverts probably fared a little bit better during quarantine than than, uh, more extroverted people. But the thing is, is it really made me realize, yeah, I still need live performance, Um, I mean, I liked the convenience of being able to work from home, but getting out on the road and playing in front of people, like that's definitely something that that I still want in my life, being able to see the faces of the people enjoying your music. uh, There's really nothing like it. You grew up in East Tennessee, which has ties to the earliest recorded country music. Is that heritage and that history something you consciously think about or, or put into your music? It underlies everything everything that I do. When I was younger, I had a propensity to not really see myself as like of this world, as in I really had this, this very sort of like alienated, isolated feeling of just not really feeling like I belong anywhere and that I can only really live in art and song and expression, but I didn't know how to live in the world traditional music you know southern appalachian southern country music that's the music that helped me reconnect to planet earth reconnect to the physical world i don't know why that was the genre of music that helped me see that Um, and i've never quite described it in that way before so this is the first time i've ever described that connection in the way that I'm doing it now. So now I'm going to ponder on that. But once that helped me ground my sense of self, then things really started to kind of open up to where I was starting to see how I fit into the rest of the world, how the things that I say and do, do have impact in other people's lives, whether I realize it or not. 12 some years later, with you know the last you know four or five years uh, going to therapy <laughs> to unpack things, I've been coming to this place of like feeling life is messy, but I'm happy with whatever messiness happened. I'm glad that I still was am able to make it to where I am now, where I really love and enjoy what I'm doing, and I love where where I am, and um, it's it's a different place than the place I was in when I wrote the songs that would be on Wary and Strange. I'm just in a very different headspace now. 
and definitely don't want to give the impression that, you know, my life's perfect and everything's wonderful, but it's just an accepting of the world as it is and to do the best that I can in the world as it is and to try to be understanding and compassionate and forgiving. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. What, what, what an answer. Um, that, that was awesome. Black cultural contributions have constantly been erased. And that's especially the case with roots music. I'm curious what your experience has been like and how that plays into how you approach songwriting and making music. I feel fortunate that the way that I was introduced to traditional music was in an academic setting. Because I was in the academic setting, because I was with faculty that were aware of the black erasure of history. And so when I came into the program because of my interest in the music, I already had people immediately that were like, this is awesome. And from the get go did not make the distinction between, oh, well, only white people do this. You know, when I was younger, a lot of the music I listened to was like Green Day, Blink-182, later on go on to be like Tori Amos and Bjork and Radiohead, a lot of alternative artists. And when I started learning about old time music, it also created another connection to where the music that I was listening to, I'm essentially listening to the origins, the ancient music of <laughs> America, you know? Um, so that was also cool to make, uh, to make that connection. Yeah, I mean, I kind of want to continue a, a little bit because, um, like, the first listen to that album, the I pick up a banjo and they sneer at me line, like, was what jumped out. And then, like, that whole song is just an anthem. It's full of, like, these wry, I mean, honestly, your whole album is full of wry, clever lines, but, like, that one has a lot of good lines, especially. Can you talk about that song a little bit and, and a little bit of how you wrote it and kind of what maybe what response you get from it on the road when you play? Yeah, sure. Um, so, so yeah, with, with that line, I pick the banjo up and they steer at me. It was definitely, it was in reference to the beginning of the commercial recording industry when there was Hillbilly Records were white, white people playing stream band music and then Race Records was everything else. If you were black, it was a race record. It didn't matter what you were playing. But then it got to the point where no one wanted to record black string bands because they didn't think white people would listen to them playing it, even though everybody played it. So that was a nod to that. And it was also a parallel to what I would experience in my own life, which was, if we look at that, a person literally having to stop recording a certain kind of music because you weren't accepted as part of that canon to me now bringing in a banjo and a guitar to a gig and having seeing some people kind of being like what who what what is what's happening who is this why like they literally most of the people had never seen a black person holding a banjo in their life but then when I would perform that disarmed a lot of people and then people would ask me well, how'd you get into bluegrass or how'd you get into country or how I didn't necessarily take it as malicious it was like well you're black I've never seen a black person playing this music I didn't know black people listen to this music so it was just sort of a thing of like being incredulous and because fortunately the way that I got into the music was when I was reading about the history of it 
that's how I, I tie that into the conversation they're having with that person. And, and then a lot of the time they'd walk away being like, wow, I had no idea. And lots of really amazing teachable moments happened. So I can say that most of my interactions have been, have been positive um, and whatever tension or discomfort that there was, it was usually just a vibe, like a vibrational sort of tension of like, okay, these people don't want me in here or whatever, you know, it would, it would always be, you know, more subtle and um, just fortunate that that's as, that's as bad as it's gotten. I, I'm interested, earlier you talked about sort of being in a different headspace from where you were with Wary and Strange. So what's next? Where Are you starting to write your next album already? Yeah, I've started writing songs for, for the next record. I've already got the, the title picked out. Interestingly enough, not to give too much away, but I started going into it with this one definitive idea of how it would sound, but what I started listening to and watching around this time kind of led me into another direction um, sonically. So yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about it. It's um, I mean, I can't say that it is going to, um, you know, it is going to be, it is definitely going to be, you know, different from the last record. Um, but it's still, it's still going to be weird. You know, I always want to make sure that I keep it, keep it melodic, keep it melancholic and keep it weird is sort of how I, (laughs) that's how I try to roll. So, um, I find myself, and when I say different, I really mean like, I'm going to, there's more songs that are in major key than the last, on the last record. So, so that's what I mean by different. Um, and it's kind of opened up these different melodic ideas, um, and led me kind of listening to, music that I hadn't really engaged in um, properly and in depth. And so it's kind of given me some new ideas for things that, uh, that I, you know, haven't tried yet. So, so yeah, it's going to be cool. And we're going to, going to try to um, try to get in the studio sometime this year. So that'll be, that'll be good. (laughs) I don't want to misquote, but keep it melodic, keep it melancholic keep it weird like that's a mission statement that's awesome yeah i just came i mean i just came up with that i hadn't planned that i was like hey this is cool idea so anyway yeah you heard it here first (sighs) folks hashtag that (laughs) yeah (laughs) amethyst kia this has been awesome thank you so much for coming on and speaking with us on inside appalachia oh yeah thank you so much for having me it's been a pleasure that was singer songwriter amethyst kia her latest album is wary and strange released in 2021. She's touring this summer, including here at my local music festival, Floyd Fest. We talked in that last interview about how the pandemic brought performance art to a halt. West Virginia's much-beloved Vandalia gathering canceled altogether in 2020 and then was shrunk down to a thimble-sized two-hour concert version in 2021. This year, the Vandalia gathering finally returned to the grounds of the Capitol Complex in Charleston, with old-time music, clogging, tall tales, and the smell of fresh roasted corn. Eric Douglas sent us this audio postcard. I'm a lonely man in a lonely town. 
Isaac Butcher. Isaac Butcher? How old are you? 13. I'm from Ripley. Alright. <laughs> Robert Schaefer. Sissonville. I'm a DJ Kessinger, and that's my dad, Dan Kessinger. Uh, nice to meet you both. What do you think about being back here at uh, uh, Vendelia again for the first time in a while? It's been a long three years. Yeah. <laughs> Bethany Moore. Because it's important to honor West Virginia culture, and this your, is a festival for that. Uh, what's your favorite part of, of Vandalia? Uh, probably the instruments and the clogging. And the clogging? Yeah. No, they're in the, the building. Oh, okay. Yeah. This is your sister behind you? This is my yeah. mom, and then that's my sister. Yes, I'm her sister. <laughs> we are from Columbus. What's your name? Raylene Cross. What do you think about this? Um, I love the music. That's all we've really done so far, but it's gorgeous. It's fantastic. Um, some great pulled pork, and we did just go to the John Q. Dixon, Dickinson Salt Farm, so we're learning all kinds of stuff about West Virginia this week. Very cool. Thank you. You're very welcome. You guys, I appreciate it. next time. Thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford, with additional music from Amethyst Kia and John Ingram. Bill Lynch is our producer. Alex Runyon is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Twitter, at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to insideappalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash insideappalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. 
or look for Inside Appalachia wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.